0: What a beautiful song that we have just sung. It's certainly in accord with the lesson that I intend to present tonight as I talk about the way of the cross. It's good to be back tonight. It's good to look into your faces. And we had visitors with us, as has already been noted. And of course, I'm always honored when preachers come into the assembly. And I enjoyed so very much Richard Bunner's prayer. These are my friends and they of course are sympathetic with the preacher and of course it's good to be with Austin and all of you and there's some that have come quite a distance tonight to be a part of this meeting and that speaks well of you. It shows your love for the Lord, your love for the gospel and uh, your love for the Lord's church. You know, somebody wrote these words. He said, the heart of Christianity is the Bible. The heart of the Bible is the cross. And the heart of the cross is the heart of God. I don't think any truer words could be spoken. We wouldn't know what Christianity is all about if it were not for the word of God, if it were not for the Bible. And of course, as we look into that wonderful book, the central theme of that book is the death of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. And then as we view that cross and what Jesus did for us, we see there the heart of God. We see that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about the cross. I'm told by those that are given to counting verses that there are some, some 175 verses in the New Testament that deal with the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And so it must be the most important event in time and also an eternity. You know, as the crucifixion was nearing, The shadow of the cross was casting its deeper gloom upon our Lord. And Jesus talked often about his death. One passage that shows the depth of his sorrow is this one in John the 12th chapter beginning in verse 27. He said, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of thee, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. No question that Jesus was talking about his death upon Calvary's cross. You know, it wasn't long after this statement was made that Jesus took his disciples to an upper room. And there he instituted the Lord's Supper, took a loaf of unleavened bread and said, this is my body. Take eat, this do as you oft as you, uh, this do in remembrance of me. He took a cup containing the fruit of the vine and he said concerning that cup, this cup is the New Testament. Concerning the fruit of the vine, he said, this is my blood. And after he had instituted the supper, Jesus took his disciples across that Kedron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. He stationed some of his disciples like sentinels along the way. But then he took those special three, Peter, James, and John, on the inside of that garden. And the Bible says that he went about the space of a stone's throw. And he prostrated himself upon the earth and he prayed this prayer. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. He prayed that prayer three times. After he had prayed his prayer, Jesus saw some lanterns or torches coming up the way. And they were people that were being led by Judas a mob, if you please, there to arrest our Lord and carry him before the Sanhedrin court. He, of course, was kissed by Judas, that betrayal kiss of our Lord. Then, of course, he was taken before Annas, the uh, high priest, and also Caiaphas, and eventually before the Sanhedrin court, where he was met with bitter abuse and false accusation. They buffeted him, they spit upon him, they slapped him, they hit him with their fist. They said, "Prophesy, who hates you? Who hates you?" Even though Jesus our Lord was blindfolded. But then, after that mock trial, they took him before Pilate, the governor, to obtain the death warrant. Pilate didn't want that job and so He shifted it off to Herod the king and Herod just made sport of our Lord, put a robe on his back and sent him back unto Pilate. And then Pilate had to make the decision and he didn't want to. After he examined our Lord, he said, I find no fault in this good man. Five times he said that. He tried to bargain with them. He said, I'll give you one of two. I'll give you either Barabbas, who is a murderer and insurrectionist. I'll give you Jesus, the pure and innocent son of God. They said, give us Barabbas. Of course, seeing that he couldn't reason with their wickedness, he decided that he would punish him and maybe this would be enough. And so he sent him to be scourged. And his back was lacerated with those stripes, as Isaiah said, by which we are healed. They placed a crown of thorns upon his brow brow, and a robe upon his back. And they sent him back to Pilate to receive the final decision. Well, Pilate, of course, did not want to make that decision. He didn't want to crucify this innocent man. He said, what shall I do with Jesus? They said, away with him, let him be crucified. He said, shall I crucify your king? They said, we have no king but Caesar. He was so alarmed at their wickedness that he decided to do a very cowardly act. He washed his hands before them and he said, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See you to it. And then they hurried him away. With a heavy cross upon his back. The Bible says that he reeled and fainted. And fell under the weight of that cross. And Simon of Cyrene was co- uh, compelled to carry it on to the place of execution. You know my friends in all of this tragedy. I see only one act of compassion. And that was the act of a Roman soldier. Who offered to him wine mingle with myrrh and i'm told that it is a drug that can ease pain and jesus refused it he wanted to drink that cup to its bitterest dregs for you and for me well of course they nailed him to that cross and there he hang suspended between heaven and earth as though we were fit for neither place there crucified for you and me They mocked him there. They said, ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it again in three days. Come down from the cross. Come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. You said that God was your father. Let's see if his father will save him. Judge just mocked him there. Tonight, my friends, in a very imperfect way. I want you to see his agonies. I want you to hear his cries. As he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Then finally he says, I thirst. They give him wine mingled with gall. And finally, after six hours of the strongest suffering ever borne by any human being, Jesus said, it is finished. And I'm sure that his voice rang through that Kedron Valley. And it still rings in the hearts of people today. It was finished. His debt or our debt for sin had been paid. And finally he says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. The Bible teaches us that by the time that Jesus was crucified and was nearing or was coming to this hour of death, that the old earth was just mantled in darkness. And while men were speaking to one another in whispers in the midst of all of their consternation, they heard a rumbling. In the, future, in the distance and that rumbling increased and it seemed that the very foundation of the earth was being broken up. And the centurion said, truly this good man is the son of God. And so tonight, my friends, I have given to you in a very imperfect way, the way of the cross according to Jesus Christ. What did that cross mean to Jesus? Well, in the first place, it meant shame to him. Did you know that uh, the only class of people that the Romans would uh, crucify were Roman slaves? A slave that was guilty of murder or some other heinous crime was stripped naked of his clothing before the gazing eyes of the public and crucified on a cross. They took my Lord. The Lord of glory. They stripped him naked before the gazing eyes of a sinning world. And they nailed him to a cross for you and me. Yes, there was shame associated with that cross. But I read over in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, the 2nd verse. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, that word despise there simply means that he gave no account to it. He took no account of the shame of the cross. Yes, there was shame, but Jesus didn't take account of that shame. God help us when we're ashamed of our Lord today, our Lord who bore That shame on Calvary. But of course the death of Jesus or the cross meant to Jesus his death. And it was the worst sort of death. It wasn't the death of a martyr. It was a voluntary death. A substitutionary death. A vicarious death. Jesus our Lord suffered the worst sort of death for you and me. I read over in Philippians, the second chapter, the eighth verse, the apostle says, Concerning Jesus and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You know, Isaiah looked down the stream of time, 750 years before this time, and he prophesied the death of Jesus. He said he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his, with his stripes we are healed. Yes, that is the death of the Savior. So now we ask the question, what was the purpose? Or what were the purposes of the cross? You see, my friends, when we want to really Uh, satisfy our soul's hungers and thirst for the real things of God. We look to the cross. Why did Jesus endure the cross of Calvary? Well, our passage that we've just read said it was for the joy that was set before him. How can you account for that? How could there be any joy in all of the suffering and agony and ignominy Of the cross. We can't see it can we? But Jesus could. You see Jesus could see the joy. Of redeeming us from sin. We're told over in Titus the second chapter. The fourteenth verse. Who gave himself for us. That he might redeem us from all iniquity. All sin. And purifying to himself a peculiar people. Zealous of good works. It was the joy and the great heart of Jesus. Jesus. To redeem us from that thing that is blinding and damning and uh, the whole human race. Sin. The blackest page in human history. The incurable cancer of the soul, if you please. He was redeeming us from sin. All the trail of suffering that has been caused by this slimy serpent of sin. I want to tell you tonight, all of the suffering that has ever been borne by the human race can be traced back to this one thing. You can write above it in boxcar letters one word. And that word is sin. Pain and death are the very children of sin. You know, the Apostle Paul drew us a very dark picture of the sinful heart. In Romans, the third chapter, beginning in the 10th verse, he said, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of apse is in their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the situation of the sinful heart. And I want you to notice that he says their throat is an open tomb. It's like a grave where somebody has laid a dead body and they've forgotten to cover it up. And there it putrefies and corrupts and emits a nauseating odor. And I say that there is no more nauseating odor to the nostrils of our God than that of sin. Jesus died to redeem us from that, from sin. And then, of course, there is the joy of effecting a reconciliation with God. Here we see in the cross the power and the wisdom of God, the means by which a sinful world can be reconciled unto a holy God and enjoy that sweet fellowship that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the Garden of Eden itself. You see, friends, sin had caused a great chasm between God and man. But Jesus came and he bridged that chasm. And the way that he bridged that chasm was with his cross. You know, speaking of the Jew and the Gentile, the apostle said in Ephesians 2 and 16, that he might reconcile them, that is Jew and Gentile, both to God in one body, how? Through the cross, therefore putting to death the enmity. You see, the cross not only was able to bind God and man, but even man and man. Here were two elements of society that were as, as far apart as the Poles, the Jew and the Gentile. But through Jesus' death upon the cross of Calvary, they have a common center. And that common center is Jesus Christ. And then there was the joy of drawing all men unto him. Jesus said it in John the third chapter, the 14th verse, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. And in John 12 and 32, he said, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples unto me. As we've already pointed out, he was talking about his cross draw all men to me. That's the broadness of God's mercy and His grace. You know, the narrowness and the bigotry of man might be likened unto the little sea of Galilee that is shut in from all of the uh, nations and it bears upon its bosom only the commerce of that particular nation. While the broadness of God's mercy and His grace Is like the great sea, like the ocean that bears upon its bosom the commerce of the entire world. And with its waves, it washes the shores of all of the nations. Jesus said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men unto me. Well, that's what it meant to Jesus. That was the purpose of the cross. But what does the cross mean to you and to me? Well, one thing might not sound so important, but it's very important. It meant the end of the Old Testament law. We're told in Colossians 2 and 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, that was the Old Testament law, which was contrary to us and has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to his cross. Jesus nailed that Old Testament law To the cross as an eternal signification. That is no longer operative. You know in this for the last 15 years. I've had a group of people that has been reading through the Bible. And invariably when they read the Old Testament. They will say somewhere along the line. I'm so glad we don't live. Under that law. Jesus freed men from that law by his cross. But of course the cross means to us the power of God. The apostle said in 1 Corinthians 1 and 18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. You know, the Bible tells us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The apostle said, I'm not ashamed. Of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. But over in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, we're told that the gospel, in fact, is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the cross means to us that power. You know, some time ago I saw displays in a certain uh, uh, periodical I'm turning, going the wrong direction here. This little diagram. The man was picturing for us the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, the word gospel means good news. And he said it's even better than that. It is the best news. What is that good news? That Jesus lived, that Jesus died. And that Jesus lives. You know, Jesus over in Revelation 1 and 18 said, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And because that he died for us, and because he is alive forevermore, you and I have the hope of eternal salvation. You know, when I look at the cross, I see that there's safety there, and there's safety nowhere else. I'm told that many years ago out in the west, where the grass would grow rank and high, there were often in the autumn great sweeping fires, and they would fly with the swiftness of the fastest horse. Well, those people knew exactly how to deal with it. When they would see that hurricane of flame coming their way, they immediately would set fire to the grass on the leeward side. And then they would take their position there and they would await in safety the approaching storm. The same is true with us. There's a place that has been burned bare for us. It's at the cross. And there is, is there, and there is no other safety. And finally, to us it means a separation from the world. The apostle said in Galatians 6 and 14, But God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Again, he said in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Who gave himself for our sins... That's when he died, that he might deliver us from this present evil age. Another version says world, according to the will of God, our father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The world and the cross, my friends, are incompatible. You can't live in the world or for the world and live for God at the same time. You can't hold on to the world with one hand and the Lord with the other. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. John said in 1 John 2 and 15. Well, what should I do? What should we do with the cross of Jesus Christ? The Bible tells us in the first place we're not to make it void. You know, in that passage of scripture that talks about being an enemy of the cross, it tells us that we can make void that cross. In 1 Corinthians 1 and 17, for Christ did not send me to be baptized, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of non-effect. One version says, not with an orator's cleverness. Another says, without eloquent wisdom. Weast in his word studies says, not bringing this good news from the realm of philosophical discourse. Today, my friends, you and I live in an age in which the wisdom of man has been mixed with the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the philosophy of man and the wisdom of man is mixed with the gospel, it causes the gospel to lose its power. God forbid that we should destroy the simplicity of the pure gospel of Christ with the foolishness of man's wisdom and his wise words. But then I would say, as I've already suggested, we should not be an enemy of the cross. Can we be an enemy of this great event that has meant so much to us? Ah, yes. The apostle said it with tears in his eyes in Philippians 3, 18 and 19. He said, for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Whose end is destruction? Whose God is their belly? And whose glory is in their shame? Who set their mind on earthly things? Can we be enemies of the cross? Paul said so. He said we can be an enemy of the cross by being lustful, allowing this old flesh to overcome the spiritual part of our man. And then by glorying in that which is shameful. There are a number of things in the Bible that are said to be shameful to engage in those things is to be an adversary of the cross of christ and then by being worldly he said they set their minds on earthly things and this of course is something that has destroyed many a christian the cares of this world have have robbed us of so many wonderful people well what should we do it do with it we should glory In the cross. Paul said it so well. In Galatians 6 and 14 he said God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. You know there were a lot of things that Paul could have gloried in. He could have gloried in that he was a Pharisee of the strictest sect. He could have gloried in the fact that he was a Roman citizen with all the rights of one. He could have gloried in all of the power that God had given unto him. If he were living today, I believe that he would be extolled as being the greatest orator, theologian, and evangelist of the time. But the apostle just brushed that all aside. And said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Christ. He would sing with us, In the cross of Christ I glory, towering o'er the wrecks of time, all the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime. You know, we can glory in the cross, my friends, because that the cross is radiant with love. Everything that our Lord did when he was walking upon this earth was because of his love. We see love incarnate in Bethlehem's barn. We see love working in his ministry. We see love weeping tears of sympathy when Lazarus passed away. We see so much love in Jesus' life. But chiefly at the cross, we see love expressing to us the deepest of love. In fact, it is love that has a height without top, a depth without bottom, a length without end, and a breadth without limit. There's nothing like the love of God that was manifest in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a love, my friends, that will not, Let me go. You know, George Matheson wrote that song back in 1882. And we have sung it down through the years. But there's a story behind it. George Matheson was engaged to a beautiful girl and the time of their waiting was near at hand. But he noticed something was going wrong with his eyes. So he went to a specialist and after an examination... The specialist told him, he said, George, you're a young man. You have a long life ahead of you. But I'm sorry to tell you that in a few months you're going to be totally blind. Well, George immediately thought about his sweetheart. He said, I've got to tell her. I've got to release her from that engagement if she so desires. And so he went to her that night and he told her, I'm going to be soon blind expecting her to say, oh, George, I love you too much. I can't let you go. But instead, she said, tonight it's all got to be over. I can't spend my life with a blind man. Well, he went to his room that night, brokenhearted, disillusioned with human love. But then he looked into the face of the master and he wrote those words, oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. And then he saw the cross in it all. He saw cross that lifts up my head. I dare not ask to hide from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead and from the ground there blossoms red life That shall endless be. It is a love my friends. That will not let us go. And then we should bear the cross. The apostle says our Jesus our Lord said in John and Luke the ninth chapter the 23rd verse. If anyone desires to come after me let him deny himself. Take of his cross daily. And follow me. You know we often sing must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No. There's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. Jesus had to bear his cross but you and I have a cross to bear. We have the burden of Christianity that we must bear. We have the burden of self-denial that we must bear and yes we must die. Die to self. Die to sin. Die to the world. That is our purpose here in this world. The Apostle said in Galatians 2 and 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then, my friends, you and I must preach that cross. The Apostle said in 1 Corinthians 1 and 18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. But listen to him in 1 Corinthians 2 and 2. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's why this preacher must preach the cross tonight. That's why every preacher must preach the cross. It's the power of Almighty God. The final question I ask is why? Why should we take the way of the cross? Well, let us give the negative side of it all. Lest we go to perdition. You know, in the verse that we quoted a while ago about being an enemy of the cross of Christ, the apostle says, whose end is destruction? And so I ask the question, is there anything in God to fear? And all I have to do is just simply point you to the cross. And there you see the wrath of God against sin. There you see that sin had to be punished. And Jesus our Lord bore that for you and me. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21 that he was made sin for us. Every pang of suffering that Jesus endured upon the cross was a pang of suffering for sin. And we're told over in Hebrews 2 and 9 that he tasted death for every man. And he wasn't talking about physical death. Jesus did die. He didn't just taste of death. But he tasted of eternal death. He tasted of hell for you and me so that we might not have to taste of hell or experience hell in the great after a while. But let us turn to the pleasant. We'll take the way of the cross. Because it leads home. We take that way to reach that eternal place that is called heaven. There's so many passages that we read. Revelation 22 and 14. Blessed are those who do His commandments. That they may have a right to the tree of life. And may enter in through the gates into the city. You see at the end of this way that we call the way of the cross. There's life. There's eternal life. There's eternal life in the most beautiful place that the mind of God could ever conceive or the hand of God could ever execute. Heaven, the home of the soul that we read about last evening. I must needs go home by that way. So let us take the way of the cross. I must needs go home by the way of the cross. There's no other way but this. I shall ne'er get sight of the gates of light if the way of the cross I miss. I must needs go on in the blood sprinkled way, the path that the Savior trod, if I ever climb to the heights sublime where the soul is at home with God. Then I bid farewell to the way of the world to walk in it nevermore. For my Lord says, come, and I seek my home, where he waits at the open door. The way of the cross leads home. The way of the cross leads home. It's sweet to know as I onward go, the way of the cross leads home. I'm asking you tonight, have you taken the way of the cross that leads home? It's so simply done. Just simply render loving submission to the will of Almighty God. You do what Jesus who went the way of the cross. You do what he told you to do. Jesus told his apostles to go and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. The apostle Peter carried out that will of the Lord in that great commission and on the day of Pentecost, when they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? He said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. You know, the Ethiopian eunuch did repent. He did believe. And he wanted to be baptized. And he said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, if you believe, you may. He said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then he was allowed to be baptized into Christ. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, that's what you have to do. It's simple. It's not a, uh, it's not a complicated plan of salvation. It's just simple belief, repentance, confession, and baptism. And I've already heard that there's one person... That's going to be baptized. I hope that there are others that will join this person. Maybe I'm talking to someone tonight that has strayed away from your Lord. You need to make some wrongs right. You need to repent of your wrongs. Be one of either class. Come while we stand, while we sing.